Hello, darling. How are you? Hello, gorgeous. I'm better now that I'm seeing your beautiful face. Likewise. Always. How have you been? Good. I saw a show. I saw a Broadway show over the weekend. When do you not see a Broadway show over the weekend? You are like the fanciest person I know. I love it. <laughs> I get all my Broadway news from you. Anytime I like bring up Broadway and I know something, I'm like, literally, Monique is the only reason I know this. Cool. <laughs> um, I'm definitely not the fanciest person. I literally live like walking distance. So it's much more accessible to me than literally most people in the world. You got to take advantage of it. Yeah, if I'm going to pay this much to live here, I might as well take advantage of it. It's called POTUS, or behind every great dumbass are seven women trying to keep him alive. Wait, I love that. Best title ever. (laughs) If that wasn't enough, three guesses what the first word of the show is. (gasps) Fuck? Nope. Damn it. Close, though. Oh. I'm just guessing other shirt. Bitch? Cunt? Like, what? Cunt. Hey. It's the first word of the show. And then it's said again. I love it. You had me a cunt. Seriously. You know, it's a great way to start a show. (laughs) I literally talked about my love of that word with somebody last night because I'm a fucking (laughs) psycho. Oh, I love it. Oh, I did get it in three guesses, to be fair, but I did take me a minute. Oh, but you got it in three guesses. So you nailed it. Uh, It was great. It's a seven... It, it closed, so I saw it right before it closed, as I tend to see most of the shows. It was a seven-person cast of women, and it's a farce, which is my my heart, my whole heart. So for those of you who don't know what a farce is, like I Love Lucy is a great example of a farce. There's, it's very fast-paced. There's some sort of scheme. There's running in and out of rooms. There's like a miscommunication. There's um, mistaken identity or someone pretending to be someone else. Like There's all of that chaos happening. And there's this woman who was the lead, even though they had Vanessa Williams, who was in the show, they had her bow last. And I was like, she was not the lead. She was like fifth of the seventh, but whatever. This woman, Julie White, is every motherfucking thing. She's such a queen. She's like Catherine O'Hara level genius. (gasps) Oh my God. That's such a compliment. Fuck. Okay. She's that level, except she's a Broadway person. And so like most people don't know who she is, but she's a fucking genius. And I know someone who saw the show nine times, which, wow, girl, work. Damn. Okay. And she said that she, it was different every night. Really? I love that. Like how she did the flustered things was different every night and goes to show one, how the directors trust her of like, she's just not going to go, you know, derail the show, but that it's like, but to give her that freedom to be like, you don't hit the don't hit it exactly the same every night. She's just such a genius. I saw her in a show that wasn't that great a few years ago. It was called Gary, the sequel to Titus Andronicus. Oh, okay. And it was a comedy with Nathan Lane. And it was supposed to be Andrea Martin, but she like did a stunt in the show and broke her ribs. So like her understudy. Yeah. Shit. Fucking happens. So the show was okay. But then this chick came out and I was like, who the fuck? fuck are you? And I did that thing that in the middle of the show, I pull out the playbill and I look up her credits. I'm like, I've not seen a single fucking thing. And then Nellie was like, Julie White's a fucking genius. And and Nellie is not a a straight play person, but she's like, Julie White is actually a genius. And then when I saw POTUS, because no one else really knows who Julie White is, I texted Nellie being like, you're the only person I know who will appreciate this conversation. But I just saw POTUS and Julie White gives you like such a fucking lady boner. And then she just responded back, all caps, Julie White's a genius. I'm like, 
I actually know. <laughs> Facts. Like, that is what I want in my life is to be doing, like, me living my best life, doing a farce, doing the show, and doing pinup modeling. If I, like, can get to that space in my life where that's just what I'm doing and nothing else, fucking nailing my life. I love it. That's the goal. So it, that's your vision board. Well, you're going to manifest it. You've put it out there. Yeah. Let's do it. We're doing it. Get on it, universe. Shit. Yeah, what the fuck? (laughs) What about you? Do you have anything going on this week? Uh, This week, no, but I did do some fun stuff last week. Mm. So I, one, got to go see The Thing at Alamo Drafthouse in theaters. Fuck yes. Which, obviously a classic, John Carpenter. I really, really, really enjoyed seeing it in theater. So it was totally worth it. It lives up to everything. Like the special effects are still amazing. Kurt Russell is just sploosh. Like totally magically babelicious. Absolutely. Ugh. Oh my God, that beard. Mm. Stop it. McCready. Girl. Sploosh. Ugh. I know. So I think I kind of caught like one of the last days. I don't know how long they're doing it, mm. but Highly recommend if you have the opportunity to go see it in theaters, go see it in theaters. Fuck yeah. Part of me was like, do I, I was like, do I want to do this? Like I've already, I've seen it a million times. I know what happens. I could go see a new movie I haven't seen before. And then I was like, when am I going to have the chance to see this in theaters though? Right. Like other things will come back to theaters. They'll stay in theaters longer. Mm -hmm. Like this is, might be my only opportunity. Yeah. So that was one of those movies that I like didn't see for the first time until like five years ago. Really? Yeah. I don't know how I missed it. Oh my God. It's one of my dad's favorite movies. It's a great movie. It's a great movie. So he introduced me to it in my like teen years when I was old enough to watch that. And it used to be his like sick day movie. I don't, he said when he was a kid, but I judging by the year it came out, I don't know. He was probably his teens, I guess. So yeah, he used to watch that like when he was sick. So then like there were times I was sick where I was like, I'm going to watch the thing because like I'm a daddy's girl. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) I would say my sick day movie Sleepy Hollow. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. I recently introduced another friend who's moving out of New York, who's been living here for a year and is moving uh, back to where she's from in two weeks to Alma Drafthouse because she wanted to go see Nope. And she was like, how the fuck have I lived here for a year and not known about this place? I'm like, girl, it's amazing. It actually is amazing. I haven't been to another movie theater in so long. Like, I basically just go to Alma Drafthouse. No, you can't. You get super spoiled. You do. Because they're like, people know how to behave. They know the rules. And then you get like, you know, food and drink to, for your movie. And not just like a hot dog, like a fucking real meal. Yes. And also their food is delicious. Like mm-hmm. honestly better than some restaurants I've gone to. Absolutely. Like actually on point. Yeah. They like are always like updating their menus and stuff to make sure that they're like correct. Yes. They have great sours, which not all places carry sour beers. So I appreciate and love that. The other fun thing I did this week was I got to go see... Rage Against the Machine in concert. Fuck yeah. Which is one of my favorite bands. I know someone else who was there. I actually like met so many people who like just in talking about it realized like everyone was going to Rage Against the Machine, like all on different days. They're like, oh yeah, I'm going Tuesday. Like, oh, I'm going Friday. And I was like, oh, okay, fuck. It's like Rage Week. I love it. Amazing. I love it. They canceled the rest of the tour because uh, Zach De La Roca hurt his foot on stage. 
So he did like their last shows at Madison Square Garden, which is where I saw him. Yeah. So he literally performed like sitting down for most of the set. And let me tell you, he still fucking brought it. Fuck yeah. Like I didn't realize really what was going on until they physically carried him off the stage at the end. And then I was like, oh, was he injured this whole time? Like, fuck. That's like a fucking Dave Grohl when he broke his leg. I don't give a fuck. I love it. This is fucking rock. We're not going to fucking call the tour off for that. Like, no. Rock out with your cock out, as they say. Thank you. (laughs) Or broken leg or some shit. (laughs) I was going to try to do like a rage out with your and then make it rhyme. But then I was like, I don't know. My brain's not working fast enough for that. (laughs) Sorry. No, I understand. (laughs) Uh, Um, That's awesome, though. I'm so glad you got to see them. Me too. Have you ever seen them before? I have not seen them before. (gasps) I know. They were great. So you got to see them right before the shit. Yeah. They played like all of my favorite songs, basically, except for Renegades of Funk, which is totally fine. I got it. Like, it's good. Yeah. If it's the rest of them, that's fine. Yeah. But like, I got all the fucking classics, everything I wanted to hear. Fuck yeah. And they played with Run the Jewels, who I also very much enjoy. So I got to see them both at the same time. That's awesome. Yeah. I was excited. So I know they canceled their tour, but again, if you're a Ray Dance Machine fan, like, it's never going to be a bad show. Go for it. There you go. Do it. Treat yourself. Amazing. I love that. I love all of that. Thank you. Anything else? Do you have anything exciting? Any show recommendations? Oh, yeah. I do have something super fucking exciting that happened yesterday. Shout out to superfans Bradford and Michael, who fucking custom made show shirts of ours. Yes. You'll see it on the gram. It's, I, I couldn't handle it for one fucking second. And I didn't even notice what the shirt said until I was told to look at what the shirt said. I get it. But you're being respectful. You're like, my eyes are up here. I'm not, Yeah, I'm looking, yeah. That's right. Eye contact, always. There you go. Thank you. I'm so obsessed with the two of you. I actually can't handle it. I love you guys so much. Yes. I haven't met you. But I'm looking forward to meeting you because that literally made my day. Mm-hmm. And I was like walking down the street with my like mouth open, just in <laughs> shock and awe and just giddy. I was giddy. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. I love you guys so much. I like can't handle it for one second. It's a thing that Amy and I talk about a lot of like a lot of the times we j- it kind of like we forget that other people listen to this. Yes. And so then when things like that happen, you're like, oh, my God. What? You're like, this is real. This is, yeah. It's real. Exactly. This is real. Bradford, Michael, love you so much. Obsessed with you. I'm never going to stop saying that. So, yes. Just be emotionally prepared for it. <laughs> and the next time you make a batch of those shirts, like, hit a bitch up. Yes. I want one. I We definitely want some of those shirts. So, yes. Let a bitty know. You're great. It made my day, like I said. I mean, same. <laughs> <laughs> but with that, I think that's it. Should we get to the the spookies? Spookyukies? Amazing. Ready for some paranormal business? Yes. Yeah. So I have been a terrible plant mom lately, and I've been neglecting my plants a little. So I finally got around to doing some upkeep on them this week. And I decided that while I was going to do that, I was going to listen to the Spooked podcast. Fuck yes. Because it's been a fucking minute. Me too. I, have, I haven't listened in like a year. I know. 
oh, I forgot how much I love it. And I forgot how much I love Glenn Washington's voice. Like, oh my God. Literal shivers. Literal shivers. It's like audible velvet. Yes. There is no other way to describe it. Yes, that is accurate. Mm -hmm. So that's where this week's episode comes from, as you've probably guessed. However, I also found a Reddit post about the incident, which I believe is genuinely from the same guy and not just some random person who heard the podcast and ripped off the story. But it's also Reddit, so. It's also Reddit. I didn't include too much information from that, but I took some things here and there. So I'm pretty sure it's genuine because the story is the same, but it's not identical. And their style of writing is very similar. Mm -hmm. And there were enough details that I thought, like, gave it legitimacy. Like, there were things that were mentioned that I was like, why would you add that if you right. it didn't actually experience it? Right. So, my sources, obviously, come as no surprise, Spooked Podcast, the episode titled Take Me Home, and Reddit.com. So, this story comes from a man named Corey, which obviously may or may not be his real name. Mm-hmm. About 10 years ago, Corey, who was 21 at the time, was living with his girlfriend and working at, quote, the worst Walmart in the world, end quote. Oof. Which, pain. Pain for you inside. No. Yikes. Yes. Corey described himself as an edgy, odd person. Case in point, he liked collecting weird things. Mm. Art made from dead animals, skulls, taxidermy, pickled specimen, things like that. Oh my. And according to the Reddit post, he even started pickling his own specimens when he was around 20, which like, kudos to you, dude. Yeah. He was like, oh, I found out how easy it was. And like, I just decided I'll pickle some things. That's a bold move. I know. Monique is not here for this. Monique does not want to pickle her own specimens. Uh, No, I'm not here for like a regular fucking pickle, (gasps) let alone like, no girl. Do you not know this? Have we never discussed this? Oh wait, no, we have because you don't like dirty Agnes's because it's pickle juice. I did know this. I'm just trash and I forgot. No, you're not trash. You're wonderful. And how I didn't realize that pickles and cucumbers are the same thing. No one told me. I think that's the cutest (laughs) thing ever though. I get it. I get it. Why isn't it a pickled cucumber? Yes. It's a pickled radish. Yep. Pickled egg. Like, yeah. Oh, I mean, I'm from the boonies of Florida. We're literally on the counter of like... Like people make the pickles. Yes. No, wait. On the counter of like convenience stores, little like gas stations, there were like pickled pig's feet. And like chicken feet and shit. <gasps> Literally, when you get up to the counter. So like, as I think this is part of why I'm like very morbid too. Because like, as a kid, I would literally go up to the counter to be like, hi, I'm going to pay for my Nutter Butter candy. And they'd be like, that's a pickled pig's foot. And those are some pickled chicken's feet. Thank you, Florida. Great. <laughs> girl, I know. I miss that part of Florida, girl. Yeah, you did. You lived in the, the classiest part of Florida, which is Miami. I did not. I did, but very briefly. (laughs) Oh, God. I know. I know. So he's weird. He'll pickle his own own pig's feet if he wants. (laughs) Live your truth, boo. Right? Do you. But the stuff he was really interested in was supposedly cursed stuff. Mm. He said he would buy things people claimed were cursed on eBay, and he even drove to different states to buy supposedly haunted items from people. Oh, shit. He even admitted that he bought three different Dybbuk boxes on eBay. And while he always hoped that something would happen, he never actually expected it to, which famous last words. I mean, don't fuck around and find out, man. Like, uh uh-uh. Girl. Which incidentally is my favorite new, new phrase. In case I wasn't abundantly clear from last episode or dropped it twice. (laughs) 
I love it. I'm sure people are like, I've been saying it for six months. I'm like, I'm late to the party on everything. Okay, guys? Yeah. Because as Corey admits, he never really believed in the paranormal or supernatural. He doesn't necessarily consider himself a skeptic because to him, that would mean you definitely believe it isn't real and are operating from that perspective. Whereas he's the type that won't say he doesn't believe in ghosts because as he says, he doesn't really know what a ghost is supposed to be. Right. So almost like a, like from a religious standpoint, like an agnostic of like, I don't know there is and I don't know there isn't. Totally. He also admits that he's always been into aliens, which, (laughs) fuck yes, my kind of dude. I had to throw that in there. And he was really obsessed with them when he was younger, but he still never fully believed in them since he'd never seen one or seen any real proof. So on the subject of all things paranormal, Corey says he's more of a Fox Mulder and wants to believe, but never really did. Mm. And I kind of get why, because despite having all of these weird, possibly cursed items, nothing weird ever happened. Corey said, quote, I never had one unusual, creepy experience with any of that stuff, end quote. I mean, also, I think if you're buying something off of eBay, it could be that they just found it in their grandmother's fucking attic. And it's like, this doll is creepy. Let's say it's cursed and sell it for a hundred bucks or whatever the fuck. Yeah, exactly. eBay's not doing great vetting. I mean, make some money on those knickknacks. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Then one day, while Corey was finishing up a smoke break at work, he walked up the steps to toss his cigarette butt in the bushes. And when he looked to the left, he saw this brown paper bag sitting there underneath one of the bushes. He assumed it was probably just some empty beer bottle, so he picked it up, intending to throw it away, but decided to look inside first. And inside the bag was a little ceramic lamb. Corey said it wasn't particularly creepy looking and honestly just looked like something that would be on your grandmother's shelf. It was a white lamb on a blue base with a red ribbon around its neck. And not a ceramic ribbon, a real one. Mm -hmm. The figure was about nine inches tall, and although it looked new, he said it also looked cheap. When he picked up the lamb, he saw there was a note underneath it in the bag. It was written in red ink on regular notebook paper, and the handwriting looked feminine. The note said, quote, take me home. I'll be a good little bitch. I promise. End quote. Girl. To which Corey's reaction was, that's the stupidest thing I've ever read in my life. He admits that although he knows it sounds super corny, that's literally what it said. So... He glanced around to see if anyone was nearby because it didn't look like it had been there for very long and it hadn't been there during his previous break. He doesn't see anyone, so he takes it inside and he shows it to a friend of his. When Corey told him about the note, his friend was like, you should definitely not take that home. To which Corey's response was, quote, of course I was going to take it home. I lived for that kind of shit, end quote. Mm, No. Yep. So he told his friend, you know I'm going to take this home. Like, I know it's really stupid, but where am I ever going to find something like this again? You take a picture and that's it. Right? Unless it's like uh, Maggie with the the LaLaurie mansion. Yes. Where she was like, if I take a picture of this and send it, I'm going to open a fucking portal or something. Yep. I don't know. I don't know the rules to any of this. Uh, Yeah, same. I just feel like I'd fuck it up. Oh, I definitely fuck it up, Moni. Let's be real. (laughs) Let's be real. So... He set it down near the cast register and must have bumped it when he did because it started playing music. Mm -mm. I know. I was like, oh, immediately out. No, 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 no. And he realizes it's not just a figurine. It's actually a music box. And it plays this really sweet lullaby song called The Impossible Dream, which according to him wasn't creepy at all. Apparently, I have no idea how because that sounds like so fucking creepy. And but that's just me. Did you look up the song? 
No, they, you know how they like play sound effects in the background of the podcast? Oh, yes, 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 yes. I assumed that was it, but Mm -hmm. maybe it's trademarked and it's not actually. So they may have just played something similar. All that shit sounds creepy to me. Yeah. Music boxes are are creepy. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, but maybe he was just like, oh, it's sweet. It's nice. It's like a little lamb. Whatever. I'm not scared of this. Mm -hmm. He even said it was probably the least creepy looking thing that he owned in his collection. That's how they get you. Yep. Looks sweet and innocent, and it's really not. Mm-hmm. So after work, Corey took the lamb home with him and showed it to his girlfriend at the time. According to him, they weren't really happy in their relationship, but were staying together out of convenience. And the only thing that they really had in common was that they both liked to collect weird things. So this is obviously right up her fucking alley. She's in, She's into it. She's into it. So after he told her the story and she realized that he hadn't just bought this lamb at Walmart for a joke, she was actually <laughs> excited about it because again, this is right up her fucking alley. So Corey threw the bag away, put the note in the top drawer of his computer desk and cleared his face for the lamb on the dresser in their bedroom. And from then on, they just referred to it as the lamb. Now, Corey usually worked nights and because he and his girlfriend didn't really have a great relationship, he would spend most of his time in the living room while she hung out in the bedroom. So he'd work until around 11, get home, and play games on his computer until around 3 a.m. Then, once he knew she was asleep, he'd go sleep in the bedroom. So the next night, after he brought the lamb home, he was sitting in the living room playing on the computer when he heard a rustling sound on top of the fridge. He automatically assumed it was a mouse since they'd had one before, and it's rustling around in the food. Sure. But Corey decided that he's going to get up and go look for the mouse. Now, Corey and his girlfriend have two cats, so a mouse shouldn't really be a problem. Right. At the time, both cats were laying on the floor right on the edge of where the kitchen started from the living room. Mm -hmm. So he walks over, intending to check it out, and when he gets to where the cats are, right next to the linoleum, he said the sound suddenly changed to a weird, low, growling sound, (gasps) which Corey described as almost identical to the sound that the girl makes in the grudge movie. Oh my God. Girl, yes. And for Corey, this is a hard pass because apparently the grudge was one of the only films that has ever actually scared him. He's not usually easily frightened and generally doesn't really care for horror movies, but something about that sound in particular freaked him the fuck out. And he said it was literally one of the only things that he's ever been afraid of And that exact sound was coming directly from the top of the fridge. As he was standing there on the edge of the kitchen, the sound started changing in pitch and even the cats wouldn't go anywhere near it. So now that Corey is completely freaked the fuck out, he slowly backs up and sits back in the chair at his computer. He said he could feel that all the blood had drained from his face and that he felt numb and wobbly like he was on the verge of passing out. So he's in full panic mode at this point. Yeah. And he starts thinking, okay, what do they do in movies and shows when there's some weird shit happening? Do the opposite of that. Don't be like, hello. (laughs) It's not funny, guys. Is someone there? Don't go through the house by yourself. Just move out of the house. Correct. Leave the girlfriend. You don't even fucking like her. Be like, goodbye. Correct. (laughs) So he decides that he just has to not acknowledge its existence. Like, that's what they do. Just pretend this is not happening. So he decides he's going to be the dad in every horror film and just tells himself the fridge is broken and goes back to his computer. But the noise 
is still there. And the only thing he can think to do is to put on his headphones and just blast Elvis to drown out the sound. He said, quote, I was genuinely terrified to either move or take my headphones off, end quote. He was convinced that as soon as he did, he would hear the noise right next to his ear (gasps) and he'd turn and see some old woman who was about to, quote, eat my face or some shit, end quote, Mm -mm. which I get it. Yes. Also, I very much enjoyed this story because this sounds like if one of my friends was telling me a story where they're like, the old woman almost ate my face, some fucking (laughs) bullshit. I, you know, I'm bringing the lamb home. I live for that shit. Like I just, it was so real to me that I was like, yes, this is my dude. I love it. So he just sat there frozen in terror and refused to look away from his computer. He ended up staying up all night and not sleeping because he was genuinely afraid to move. Eventually the sun comes up and his girlfriend wakes up and comes out to the living room and she starts berating him a little for staying up all night. The noise is completely gone by that point, And he just tells her, I don't want to talk about it. And it seems like she could tell he was freaked out a little. So she just drops it. Then she tells him that one of the cats scratched the fuck out of her arm last night. And she shows him. And sure enough, there are three little lines about six inches long scratched down her arm. Now, Corey knew that there was no way one of the cats had done that because they had both been with him in the living room the entire night and the bedroom door had been closed. Mm. He hadn't moved from that chair and he definitely hadn't let the cat in the bedroom. In fact, when sunrise finally came, they were almost in the exact same spot they had been in all night, still staring at the kitchen. Mm. But Corey doesn't want to freak her out. So he's like, oh yeah, must have been Banjo. Which first, adorable name for a cat. I'm here for it. I love it. Second, dude, not cool. You fucking knew. Don't gaslight me. Yeah, you fucking... Don't throw the fucking cat under the bus. No, don't blame Banjo for this. It's not Banjo's fault. It's not Banjo's fault. No. Corey said he didn't tell her what happened because, one, he didn't even really know what happened. Like, there was a weird sound and he got freaked out. Like, that's kind of hard to explain. And two, again, he didn't want to freak her out. He was already freaking out. He basically just says, like, I didn't need us both freaking out. Like, I was enough. Thanks. But after he saw the scratches, he felt sick because he knew it wasn't the cats. So the next night while he's at work, he gets a call from his girlfriend around 9 p.m. And she's completely freaking out. She's screaming into the phone and he can barely understand what she's saying, but he could hear knocking in the background. Okay. Finally, he manages to understand what she's saying. And she tells him there's someone trying to break into the house (gasps) through the walls. Oh my God. Full body chills. What the fuck? Girl. Now, Corey is obviously convinced this is somehow related to the grudge noise that he had heard Mm -hmm. that he hadn't told her about. So he takes her seriously and immediately leaves work to drive home. They stay on the phone the entire time. And at some point during his drive, she leaves the house and starts running down the street. Like, that's how terrified this woman is. He sees her running down the street in her pajamas, still on the phone. Oh, shit. Yeah. So he obviously, like, pulls over and picks her up. Since neither of them want to go back into the house, they decide they're just going to keep driving around for a while. What about Banjo, motherfucker? (laughs) She's leaving Banjo there to fucking man the fort? Yeah. Banjo's dealing with the grudge noise right now. You guys are terrible cat parents. Okay. So that's actually funny. This was in the Reddit post and somebody brought this up. Like they were very concerned about the cats. So this is the only time that they don't bring the cats with them. I'm going to mention them going on other drives after this. And apparently every single time they did, they had like a 
big pet carrier that was like almost dog sized. And they would put both cats in the carrier and literally put the cats in the car and drive around. Okay. So Banjo's okay. Okay, good. Okay. I really needed to know that. I know. I did too. So while they're driving around, she tells him that it sounded like people were knocking on all of the walls of the house. And at this point, Corey's pretty fucking certain he knows exactly what she's hearing, but he still didn't want to say anything about what he had experienced. Now is the fucking time, motherfucker. This is literally your opening. Like, you were literally given the perfect opening, and you, (laughs) girl, like, you're not even ready for what he tells her. Okay. So he tells her that he had seen a squirrel go into the wall the day before and that squirrels make knocking sounds when they get in your walls. So that's probably what she's hearing. Genuinely. I literally, that is something that sounds like such a lie that I would literally think that he made up the squirrel story because he has like a harem of women in the fucking walls that he's like banging in. Like like that makes more sense to me than a fucking squirrel. Yes! It's such a fake story. That, like, I can see his girlfriend's eye roll on top of an eye roll. Like, the eye roll had an eye roll. Right? That's what I thought. But apparently, she accepted this explanation. Like, you can tell by his tone when he says this that he is, like, shocked she believed this for one second. Like, who would believe this very obviously fake explanation? Okay, fine. How many squirrels are in this fucking house, then? That it's all the walls. Right? Like, every single wall? No. Whatever. She believes this stupid squirrel explanation, and she's fine with that, apparently. That's acceptable to her. Meanwhile, Corey is internally freaking out and on the verge of a panic attack. He said all he could think about was the dread of having to go back to the house and the now rising belief that his house was possessed by some kind of demonic thing. Also, don't gaslight your girlfriend, even if it's on the way out. Thank you! That's fucked up, dude. Like all those stories about the the kids being like, the house is haunted. And the parents be like, no, you're just dumb and a kid. And then when they're like 30, they're like, oh, no, that house is super fucking haunted. It's like, why would you do that? Don't do that. Yes. Thank you. They fucking knew. But Corey's also having a hard time reconciling this idea with the fact that he doesn't really believe in this sort of thing. Like, yeah, he has all these weird collectibles, but like nothing ever happens with them. It's not real. They eventually drove back to the house and pulled into the driveway, but he still had a bad feeling about the situation and really didn't want to go back into the house. When they got inside, Corey went into the bedroom to change out of his work clothes and his girlfriend went into the bathroom. As soon as she did, she immediately started screaming, then ran into the bedroom and slammed the door. Terrified, she tells him to go look in the bathroom that something tore up the wall. What the fuck? Girl, I know, no. I'd be like, "Ah, hi, we're getting back in the car. Cool, thanks. A squirrel didn't do this, motherfucker. A squirrel did not do this, unless it's fucking like a mecha squirrel and it's got fucking talons. Like, no, absolutely not. Now, this is not an ensuite bathroom, so they have to walk to the hallway to go to the bathroom, but it is still right next to their bedroom. So the bedroom and the bathroom still share a wall. Okay. And on that wall, the one that leads to their bedroom, there's now a huge gash in the side of it. Both the drywall and the wallpaper were peeled down and it looked like something had been raking a sharp object down it repeatedly. And there was like drywall all over the floor. Jaws on the floor. Girl. So Corey realizes that he can no longer pretend this is normal. Like, I don't think you can blame the squirrels for that one, dude. Dude. 
Knowing he couldn't come up with any story to explain the gash in the wall, he tells her they need to go for a ride in the car. Which part of me, <laughs> part of me can't stop thinking of like the dog thing. I'm like, you want to go for a ride? You want to go for a ride in the car? <laughs> yeah, let's go for a ride in the car. I love riding the car. <laughs> I was like, so that like gave me a little bit of like levity during this scary story where I was like, this cracked me up. So they drive around for a little bit and she's like, what's going on? What aren't you telling me? And even with her interrogation, it still took him like 45 minutes to work up the courage to tell her. She's like, dude, just fucking spit it out. Just tell me. Yes. She's saying this crazy shit's happening. I see it. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. I saw the gash. Thanks. Finally, he's like, look, I don't actually think we have squirrels in the wall. She's like, no shit, dude. I think our house might be haunted. After he tells her about the sound he heard and that the scratches on her arm definitely weren't from the cats, she didn't really say anything and just kind of sat in the car looking thoughtful for a few minutes. What the fuck do you say to that? Right? I would just be like, oh, we can't move. What am I going to do? Like, who can I stay with? Like, do I know any priests? Right? I was like, call Monique. That's what I'd be doing. I'd be like, all right, (laughs) texting Monique right now. I got this. Holy water, coconuts, priest party. Boom. Priest party. Got it. It's the trifecta. There you go. So when she finally asked him, why didn't he tell her this before? And he's like, I didn't want to freak you out. And I didn't really believe it. So she's like, what do we do? So they decide that until they figure out what they're going to do about it, they're absolutely not going to talk about it in the house. They weren't going to mention what it did or that the lamb even existed. And they agreed they weren't even going to say the lamb in the house. So getting rid of the lamb is not an option here. That's not one of the proposed things to do. It is not, but we'll get into that. Okay. And once very shortly. Great. They were determined to just ignore it, thinking if they just didn't acknowledge it, then it would get bored and go away. But it didn't. Every day, his girlfriend was waking up with more scratches and bruises to the point that it started to look like she was self-harming. When they'd be sitting in the living room, all the cabinets would fly open and stuff would fall out of them. But they would force themselves not to react, not to scream or freak out, and to just sit there as if nothing was happening. I don't think this is a great plan of attack. Girl. Do you know what time period this is? This would be about... 10 years ago, so... Okay, so the internet exists. Give it a fucking goog of like, hey, house is super fucking haunted. I brought home this thing. Now my house is haunted. What do I do? What do I do? Yeah, thanks. I understand like the, like if we don't acknowledge it, it's not happening is, you know, the the Sanchez motto, but like this is not the way to go. Yes. So from what I could tell, they did like look up some things and they, I think because they didn't know how to get rid of it or if it was like tied to this lamb or what the deal was that the less they interacted with it, like the less they were encouraging in a way they were worried that if they were trying to be like, hi, we acknowledge you, like, please leave that that would then give it like energy and like power to like keep doing things to them, I guess. Like dealing with like a narcissist. I guess so. (laughs) It's like, I'm giving it too much attention of its bad behavior. Yes, apparently. Okay. Guess so. They didn't know about the coconuts, Monique. I mean, very few do. Now I'm just spreading that that coconut knowledge to you. (laughs) You spread those coconuts, Monique. (laughs) You spread them all over. I love it. (laughs) So... They would just calmly get up and put everything back and close the cabinets and act like nothing strange had happened. 
if something happened to one of them and they wanted to talk about it, they would tell the other that they needed to go for a drive. And that was basically their code word for some shit went down that I need to tell you about. Mm. Because again, they refused to talk about the lamb and whatever the fuck is happening to them in the house. But this quickly became something that everyone in their lives knew about. They had a large friend group. He said around 40 friends, which like, damn, that's too many friends for me. I don't even know 40 people. Right? I was like, that's too much for me. Yeah. But yeah, I'm an introvert. So, and all of their friends are like, why don't you just get rid of this thing? But he didn't want to break it or throw it in the trash because he was afraid that if he did that, it might still not leave the house. And then he wouldn't have the vessel it belonged in. And then they would never be able to escape it. Which, like, okay, it's kind of fair. Yeah, but why don't he, why doesn't he just pull the same bullshit that had how he got it? That the person did? Yes. Yeah. So I don't know why, because that's totally what I would have done. But he felt like he couldn't just like leave it or abandon it somewhere. He had to find somebody who would willingly take it because he willingly took it and he was like excited about it. So. He thinks that's the only way that you can actually like transfer it to another person is they have to be willing to take it, mm-hmm. which I wouldn't know anybody who would be willing to take it. Like, despite these 40 friends, I don't think anyone's going to be like, yeah, give me the haunted lamb. Totally cool. Great. Like, nah. No. Zach Bagans, that motherfucker. He totally would take it. He'd be all about it. He totally would. <laughs> Fuck Zach Bagans. Okay. Then would just like be fucking antagonizing the fucking lamb. Right. But then the lamb would go for him. I'd be into it. Douchebag, right? Yeah, I'm okay with that. The lamb can haunt him. I'm okay with that. That's fine. Yeah. Corey even said that some of the people who came to his house would start acting very odd. And he didn't really get too much into this because he said it was in a way that he knows they like wouldn't really want publicized. So sure, I don't really know the details of this, but mm. apparently people got weird when they came to his house. Mm. But- Everyone knew about the lamb. It was always a topic of conversations when they get together at people's houses. His girlfriend would be asked to show her wounds from it. And people wanted them to recount every story, which I fucking get because like, if these were my friends, I would be like, hey, how's the lamb? Like, what's happening? Tell me more. But I mean, that's me. I mean, I get both things. I get that. And then I get from the other side of being like, I don't, I don't even want to talk about this fucking thing that's destroying my life. You know what I mean? Right. Like, can you not bring up the lamb? please. We don't say the L word here. Thank you. Their friends who had been to the house all testified to the things Corey said were happening. And pretty much everyone told them that the house gave them some feeling of unease. Mm. One of their friends said being in their living room made her feel, quote, like she was dead inside, end quote. Oh my God. Yeah. Eventually no one came to their place anymore. Everyone said it freaked them out just to be there. And they were terrified to walk in. Still, They just ignored it as best they could. And this continued on for at least a year, if not longer. Oh, shit. Because on the podcast, Corey said they lived with this lamb for a couple of years. Which, dude, no. Just no. Jaws on the floor. Yeah. It's too long to live with a fucking cursed lamb. That's what the fuck is happening. Yes. Put that motherfucker on eBay. Right? And Corey said that this stuff went on every single day. So this is nonstop three years, possibly, of this shit happening. That's actually my fucking nightmare. Girl, I know. What the fuck? And while he and his girlfriend still didn't have a great relationship, they had this mutual understanding. A trauma bond? 
because of the fucking lamb. Exactly. They couldn't really do anything about their relationship problems until they just dealt with this whole thing. Like this was the issue they needed to deal with. And then once that was done, they could work on their relationship. Like that was not important. Mm -hmm. Girl. Every night he heard that grudge noise again. Things would fly off shelves. Doors would slam. As Corey described it, quote, straight up paranormal activity bullshit every day, end quote. Oh my God. Girl, I could not live like this. No, absolutely not. All for a fucking lamb too. Like, it's not even that cute. Get out of here. One of the worst incidents was when one of their pickled specimen jars exploded. It was a bird they'd had for a while and the mason jar just exploded out of nowhere on the mantle in the living room. Glass went everywhere and it took hours to find it all. The craziest thing though was that the bird itself also completely exploded, sending body parts splattering around the living room. What the fuck? Ew. What the fuck? I can't even imagine how bad this living room smelled afterwards. Like, ew. I literally like gagged a little bit just thinking of that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Meanwhile, the hole in the bathroom wall is getting larger and larger every day. But not quickly. Corey said they never heard any kind of scratching. They would just get up and the hole would be a little bit deeper. And eventually it got so deep that they could just put their hand inside this giant gash in the wall. But again, they just ignored it. Quote, it hadn't murdered anybody, end quote. Which like, sure, but also you don't have a normal life now because of this thing. So yeah, figure something out. Don't just continue to live with this for two years. Absolutely. Yes. I'm giving them the first year because like, okay, you're working it out. You don't really know what's going on. Strategize, but... Thank you. Two years after that? No. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Then one night, Corey wakes up and nudges his girlfriend awake. She's a little annoyed that he woke her up. So she's like, what? And he immediately makes the shush sign with one finger over his lips because there was a voice coming from outside their bedroom door. And they realized that whatever this was, was now talking. Uh-uh. Corey said it sounded like a nine-year-old girl. Oh. A girl, I know. I gave myself chills for that because you know how I feel about creepy children. I cannot. No. I literally full body chills. Oh my God. I cannot. No. I'm committing arson that night for the record. Absolutely. Burn this motherfucker down. Yep. Let's get the insurance money. We're getting the fuck out of here. Bye. Bye. So he said it sounded like a nine-year-old girl, but that there was no proper inflection to the words or like the words didn't really belong together. So it wasn't clear what the voice was saying. They could just hear it outside the bedroom. And after that, whatever this thing was, wasn't quiet. About once a week, they would wake up to the creepy little girl's voice outside their bedroom door. Yes. Yes. Burn it down, Monique. Burn it all down. Your face is correct. How are you still continuing to live like this? Thank you. Like, (laughs) sometimes I'm just like amazed by humans and I'm just like, we are like ridiculously tenacious over shit we do not need to be. Denial is a hell of a drug. Straight up. Girl, for real. On the bright side, whatever it was seemed to be locked out of their bedroom, though they weren't really sure why. Then one night, about six months in, Corey was sitting in the bathroom, browsing on his phone, and he heard a female voice say, hey, come here. So he finished his business, walked into the bedroom, and asked his girlfriend, did you call me? And she was like, I was really hoping that was you. Oh my God. Oh my God. So they're like, cool. 
Uh, it's actually speaking words now. Amazing. Burn it down. Burn it down. So at this point, they realize they can't ignore this voice anymore because it's very clearly speaking. And it was very clearly a little girl's voice. But again, they aren't acknowledging that anything's happening. So they never responded to it. They already refused to acknowledge any of the other weird shit that was going on. And everything they'd read on the subject told them to never, ever respond. But they'd hear it at their bedroom door at night saying things like, hey, can I come in, please? Like, please let me in, which is so fucking scary that like, again, burn it down. I would not, I would not be sleeping in this house ever. No. This is like vampire shit. Like it wants the invitation into the fucking bedroom. Right? Ooh, I didn't think of it in those terms. And that actually is interesting. Like clearly there's something in their bedroom that's preventing it from going in their bedroom. Girl, I think you have a new career path ahead of you here. <laughs> Girl, I love it. I mean, clearly, why is it being like, let me in? Right? It's, it didn't say let me into the fucking living room or the bathroom. Nope. And considering the fact that that's like where the lamb is, you'd think that would be like the hot spot for all the activity. But like, that's kind of the room where like nothing really happens. Other than the scratches. Yeah. So even after it would stop talking for the night, they would refuse to leave the bedroom for several hours afterwards. To the extent that one time they heard it a few hours before Corey was supposed to leave for work and he actually called in to tell them he was going to be late because they didn't think enough time had passed that they could safely leave the room. Like, that's insane that you're literally just like sitting in your bedroom because you're like, no, 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 it's still out there. This is literally affecting your day-to-day. Yeah. Corey said, quote, It was a nightmare every day. We just wanted it to be done, end quote. And at this point, whatever it was, was really digging through the drywall. And directly across from where it was digging was where the lamb was on their dresser, (sighs) which is even creepier. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Corey was worried about what would happen once it broke through the wall and was terrified that what was happening in the house would start happening in the bedroom. Mm. Because again, besides scratches, there's not really much happening in there. Yeah. But now he's afraid that if it manages to get in the bedroom, it'll drop like a bookshelf or something on him. Like it can obviously move things. He just like doesn't feel safe. Yeah. So one night around the time that the hole is getting to their bedroom wall at about 1.30 in the morning, Corey is sitting at his computer in the living room and he hears his girlfriend say, hey, from behind him. Without thinking, he responds like, yeah, what? And then the voice replied, nothing. And according to Corey, it sounded satisfied, that it was a gleeful kind of nothing. Corey immediately realized that that had not been his girlfriend's voice. He spun around, but there was nothing there. And he immediately starts to panic because he broke the cardinal rule. He he acknowledged it. Yeah. And interacted. Yeah. Not only had he acknowledged it, he had directly spoken to it. And it seemed very happy that he had spoken to it. Corey immediately went into the bedroom and told his girlfriend they needed to go for a drive right now. And they hadn't gone for a ride in quite a while because they'd been living like this for years and nothing it was doing was new. So they're just living with it. So while they're driving around, he tells her that it spoke to him and he accidentally responded back. And she's like, well, great. Now you've given it power. Now you've given it energy. It knows that we know it's in the house and it's going to be mad that we've been ignoring it for the past three years. Yeah. They eventually went back to the house and were relieved when the rest of the night was uneventful. The next day, Corey didn't have work, so they decided they were going to stay in. When they did, the cupboard started flying open and the food inside was falling out. 
The windows started slamming, the washing machine turned itself on, the taps were running, and there was a constant loud croaking coming from every place in the house all at once. And this goes on for like an hour and a half before they finally decide they're going to go for another drive. An hour and a half? Girl, the t- the, I don't know. I would have been out the door at first 10 seconds. I'd be like, this is too loud. I like can't tell with this. I'm gone. Yeah. I'm like, I'm, at minimum, even just like being annoyed of like, I have shit to do. So, or like, I want to watch the latest fucking, you know, Stranger Things and I can't do it in this fucking apartment. So I'm going to go. Yeah. Like, thanks. I'm not staying there for an hour and a half to see that bullshit go down. No. So when they get in the car, they realize that they could hear all of the noises from outside the house in the driveway. Like, that's how loud everything was. So now they're convinced that this abundance of activity is directly related to him responding to it, which obviously. Mm -hmm. So... Corey decided to contact a local paranormal investigation agency and send them an email. They responded in a few hours and asked him to send them a picture of the lamb. He did and said that it was the first time since they put it down that he had touched it again, like hadn't touched it since. He also mentioned that it was the only thing in the house that weirdly never collected any dust. Huh. Yeah. Which I found kind of creepy. He sent the pictures to them, then nothing. And up until this point, they had been responding to him in like a matter of hours. They would get back to him right away. Mm -hmm. And now suddenly a whole day had gone by with no word. Then two days went by. And in those two days, Corey said everything just escalated tenfold. The house was never quiet now. The grudge noise could be heard outside of the house and it never stopped. What the fuck? Girl, right? Why aren't your neighbors complaining too? Like also. Seriously. Yeah. Half the electronics didn't work, the TV barely worked, and it would flicker on and off, the power would go on and off, the taps would start running and then close, the garbage disposal would turn on, the doors were slamming and opening nonstop. Like, Mm -mm. again, how are you even staying in this house? No, thank you. No. And it got to the point that Corey couldn't accomplish anything. He wasn't sleeping or going to work, and he was on the verge of getting fired. He desperately wanted to get rid of it in some way, but he didn't know what that would entail. So they finally decide they're going to leave the house. So they go stay at her mom's house. The Reddit post says it's a hotel. Mm. Not really sure what the situation is there. Mm -hmm. He said he was way past being scared at that point, and he was just angry now. He was angry at the stupid thing he'd brought in the house, and he was mad at himself for bringing it home. He tried emailing the paranormal investigators one more time, and they finally replied saying the woman who answers their emails was also their medium, and that after she saw the pictures, she locked herself in her house and had refused to come out for the past two days. Oh, shit. Right? And they told Corey that they were really sorry, but whatever he had was out of their league. And they're just like, good luck, bro. So he's like, great, my house is fucking possessed, and now it's gone apeshit because I talked to it, and it's so bad the paranormal investigators don't want to fuck with it. Mm-hmm. Corey said he contemplated calling a priest, priest party up in this bitch. Boom. But since he's not religious and didn't know if he would need to have faith in the Lord for it to work, he decided another paranormal agency was the way to go, which I kind of get that because I would be hesitant to call a priest for the same reasons, right? I'd be like, this isn't going to work for me because like, why not? Because I don't have faith in the Lord, Monique. I mean, I've never had to call a priest to exercise my home, thank Christ. But I would imagine that you get to a point where you're like, I'm literally going to try anything. Yeah. Like, unless this guy's just super self-righteous of like, this bullshit's not going to work anyway. I think if you have like your house possessed nonstop, I think we're like, whoever you tell me to call, I will call. 
Like, I don't care. Yeah. If they can fix it, great. I will literally take anyone right now. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, that's what I would imagine you would be at. Not like, mm, I actually don't fuck with like Catholic priests. Like, I, maybe that's me. Maybe I, I reach a point of desperation like much quicker. I'm like, whoever you need me to call, I will call. No, I get that. I think that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. But I also like kind of get where he's coming from. Where like, I probably wouldn't call a priest right off because I'd be like, the, the the demon or whatever the fuck it is, is going to know I don't believe. And it's going to be like, fuck the priest. I don't care if he believes. Like, this is the bitch I'm haunting. No, thanks. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's how that works. That's probably not how it works. You're right. I make up my own rules, Monique. We don't know. I mean, is it, that's like the whole thing with the exorcist. She's like, I don't, I'm not religious. Oh, it still worked. Yeah. Where they're like, you need a fucking exorcist. And she's like, I'm not religious. It's like, well, bitch, get one because you're kind of super fucked. I was like, and it's still going to work. Thanks. Because the, allegedly the rules of how all of that works, priests just know how it works and they know the rules. Okay. And the things abide by them. Okay. Allegedly. I don't know. I don't, I have no idea. I have no idea. I have no experience with this. No. But he decides he's not going to get a priest. He's going to reach out to another paranormal investigation company. Mm -hmm. So he finds one that's about two hours away and he sent them the same pictures and basically begged them for help. This time they actually responded and they offered to drive down to help them. Mm -hmm. When the team arrived, nothing was happening. It was quiet and everything seemed normal. The doors were all closed, no sounds, nothing, even though the house itself was a disaster. The investigators had a bunch of electronic devices and recording equipment that they brought with them. And Corey said he didn't know what half of it was or what they were doing, but he appreciated that they seemed to be trying at least. Mm -hmm. So they staged the house and set up all this equipment. And for about 30 minutes, nothing happens. Eventually, they moved the investigation into the bedroom. Corey was recording on his camera at the time, but out of nowhere, the battery died. Mm. Then the investigators pointed their recording equipment at the lamb. And when they did that, all their equipment started going off. The investigators started talking to it, asking it to give them a sign, but nothing was actually really happening. There was no grudge sound. Nothing was moving. It was just the equipment going berserk. Mm. But Corey could tell that whatever they were doing had angered the lamb. He said it clearly didn't want to show itself physically, but you could feel that it was just quietly angry. Mm -hmm. One of the investigators who told Corey that she was a medium said that she was getting a sensation, an image in her head of what it was. Corey said that she never called it a demon and only ever referred to it as an entity. Mm -hmm. She told him that the entity was imitating a little girl, but that it had never been a person. Uh -huh. This wasn't a ghost or a spirit that was attached to the lamb this was something completely different. Mm. She also told him, and this is where Monique fucking nailed it, you guys, that she felt there were actually two things in the house. And the reason that whatever was attached to the lamb couldn't come into the bedroom was that there was another more benevolent entity attached to one of the other weird objects in their bedroom and that it was somehow keeping it out. Bitch. Boom. Did you nail it or did you fucking nail it? You know. You know the things. I mean, it's not my first motherfucking rodeo. Fuck yeah. I've been reading about this shit since I'm like nine years old. She fucking knows. Yeah. I, that made my, by the way, so excited when you fucking said that. I was like, oh my, <laughs> I love that you fucking just thought of that. That never occurred to me until he, they said it in the story. And then I was like, oh, fuck. Okay. Yeah. That's a great idea. Like right out the gate. Well, that's a thing like vampires. They have to be invited in. It's like, why are you asking me to come in? Yeah. If you can, if you can just come in, which I think. 
I don't know on a side note, at the bar, we have, you know, you have like bar rags and shit. So you have to get them laundered. And the laundry place is across the way and we get it delivered because it's usually, you know, while we're working. And the delivery guy shows up and it's during the shift and he won't come in. And it's very weird. And I go out to get it. It's like, is that normal? I was like, no. I was like, is this dude like a fucking vampire? Did I have to invite him in? Like, what the fuck? And like, everyone thought it was really funny because it was like, I love that. What is this? Why aren't you coming into the bar? <laughs> Some people get really weird about that. I guess. Just come to the bar. I noticed a lot at the restaurants, like where they would just like hover by the door and you'd be like, the hostess stand is over here. It says hostess on it. Like you just walk over. Yeah. And you say, hello, I would like a table. Instead of like doing this awkward, like, where are we situation near the door? Yeah. Like walk in, see what's going on. Sometimes you got to invite him in. Totally. Maybe he was a vampire, Monique. I mean, it was like 4 p.m. So I don't know. I probably not. Oh, okay. Daywalker. You never know. That's right. Yeah. Could be a emotional vampire. A Colin Robinson, if you will. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think there is a new season of that that started. That there I'm is. Yet I... to watch. I'm so behind on everything. Same. Same. So back to the story. Yep. So the paranormal investigators agreed with Corey that he just couldn't give the lamb away and that it would stay with him unless he was able to find someone who wanted it as much as he had won it when he first found it. Mm-hmm. Then the woman said she knew someone who might be willing to take it. He didn't know who would possibly want this thing knowing what it did, but the woman explained that this man collected haunted, cursed objects and had a whole museum. And it's not Zach Bagans? It's not Zach Bagans. <laughs> okay. I know. It's not, though, I swear. Okay. And Corey's like, I don't care, whatever, as long as this guy wants to take it. Like, it's fine. So I will say the information on who this went to came from Reddit. It was His name was not mentioned in the podcast. Okay. So the team wrapped up, and the next day, the woman called Corey to tell him that she had talked to John Zaffis, who is known as the Haunted Collector, and is also the nephew of Ed and Lorraine Warren. Ah, there it is. Yep. That was that was my other option, was Ed and Lorraine Warren. Yep. Their nephew. Mm. So he was willing to take the lamb. The investigators came back to the house to get the lamb so they could mail it to Zaffis. Corey and his girlfriend were relieved to finally be rid of it, and Corey said it was a very freeing feeling to finally put the lamb in someone else's hands and watch them walk out of the house with it. Afterwards, he and his girlfriend were both like, okay, is that it? Like, it's gone now, we're good? So they decided to go back to the house and stay there to make sure that whatever it was was really gone. And everything seemed completely normal again. There were no noises, no voices, no banging cabinets, nothing. Days pass, nothing happens. A couple weeks after the investigation, one of the investigators emailed Corey and told him that he had this EVP from their session that he needed to hear. Oh my God, I just got chills. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Okay, wait, here's the disappointing thing. Corey just straight up is like, no, like, no, I'm not listening to it. Quote, I don't care, dude, it's gone. I'm living my best life right now and I'm done. Keep it put it in your collection, sell it on eBay. I don't want any part of this, end quote. Which like, I kind of get. After three years, I kind of would be like wary of anything. Like I would be in the back of my brain and be like, if I, I, I have such an innate curiosity and I would want to know, but I would, I just be like, can you type me a transcript of what it says? Cause like, I'm not actually going to listen to that and possibly open myself up to anything. Like weirder shit has happened, dude. I had a possessed lamb. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, totally. I'm good. Yeah. Eventually, the house was sold to a nice elderly lady, 
And they told her what had happened in the house, but she was quote unquote perfectly accepting of that, which you weird little bitch, I love you. Live your truth, boo. Right? I was like, this is the old lady I want to hang out with. Into it. I love that. When you're just, you reach a, uh, an age where just like nothing can fuck with you anymore. You actually don't have a fuck left to give. Yes. That's a, that's a, a period I aspire to be in my life. It's the fucking best. Yeah. But they ended up leaving most of their stuff there. And the old lady called them up one day and was like, hey, you left your computer desk here. Do you want anything out of it? And Corey's like, no, it's just junk. You can throw it out. And then she was like, what about this weird note? And Corey's like, what weird note? She's like, it's written in red and it has a curse word on it. The one that came with the lamb. Yes. I'm so charmed by little old ladies who like won't curse. Oh no. Because that's clearly not going to be me at that age. Like, no, no. <laughs> it's going to be fucks left and right up in this bitch. Yes. And I'm here for it. Yeah. That's why I'm obsessed with you. Girl, same. We like two cursing old ladies together. Yes. So Corey's like, oh my God, I forgot about the note. So he tells her to just throw it away or burn it. Just get rid of it somehow. She calls him a few days later and she tells him that she tried to throw it away, but she like felt weird when she did. So she just put it on her fridge with a magnet. Like the lamb's bitch note is her kid's report card. Like, I don't know what this lady is thinking, but like, good on you. Do whatever you want. I mean. I know. I couldn't handle that. No, not for one second. No, no. And his response was literally, quote, okay, whatever makes you feel good, end quote. (laughs) (laughs) And he just thought like, okay, the house wanted to keep it. Like if she's not experiencing this, whatever, it's fine. It's just the note. Mm -hmm. Corey said that after the lamb, his days of collecting creepy shit were over. He didn't take any of it with him when he moved and his house is very much normal now. He says he hasn't experienced anything strange since. But needless to say, after the incident with the lamb, Corey said he's a bit more open to believing in the paranormal. Wait, so he doesn't believe. He's just open to it after being terrorized for three fucking years. He's more open to it. Yeah. Girl. Yeah. Denial's a hell of a drug. drug. Yep. Girl. (laughs) And that is the story of Corey and his haunted little lamb. That is fucking wild. Girl. I cannot for one second with this fucking story. I know. It was just so ridiculous. The, him telling her there were squirrels in the wall, I, like, could not get over. The bitch note, I just, like, uh, I was here for all of it. I mean, it was wild. So I one thing I was interested in that I got from Reddit, because I was like, why the fuck aren't there, like, more pictures of this? Like, I would have been documenting all of this. Like, I would have pictures of the gash, everything. So he says on Reddit that he used to have pictures of a lot of the damage, including the exploded jar and the drywall and his ex's bruises and things like that. And he had a short video of the kitchen cabinets opening and slamming, but all of the memory cards they were saved on were corrupted at some point. He said he tried recovering them, but only one of them was repairable. And it was the one that had the pictures from the investigation, Mm. the paranormal investigation. And it was like almost a decade ago. And he just didn't even think about it or expect that the cards would become corrupted. So that's why he doesn't have pictures. He did post the pictures from that he had from the investigation, like of the lamb. And it just, it's like a little lamb. It looks cute. Mm -hmm. There's like nothing scary about it. That's how they get you. That's how they get you. So I sent them to you if you want to see them. Oh yeah. I was like, but they're very cute. They don't look scary at all. But you can see like, there's like recording equipment and like EVP meters, like around the lamb. Oh, one more thing. 
This freaked him out years later. It's not really pertinent to the story. This literally looks like something like my great-grandmother had in her apartment. I swear to God, yes. I swear, I feel like everyone's grandmother had this lamb. And that's part of why it's extra creepy to me. Not gonna lie. Like, actually, like, I'm, like... 80% certain my great-grandmother had something exactly like this in her apartment. She had, like, old lady tchotchke shit. Yeah, exactly. So apparently there's a scene in the movie The Conjuring 2 of the little girl's bedroom, and there's a lamb on her dresser. Oh, so this is what it's supposed to be? And he says, it looks exactly like that lamb, except it has a blue bow, not a red bow. Mm. And he's like, I have never been more scared in my life than when I saw that fucking lamb in that movie. Because he was like, I know. Because that was after all this shit had happened. That's fucking wild. Girl, I thought you would enjoy that. I did, very much so. Good. Thank you so much for that story. Yeah, thank you to Spooked and Reddit for hosting us. Yeah. Yeah. Doing this shit. I mean, there's no way I would have allowed that shit to go on for three years. No. Like, there's no reality. Like, if it's three months, I'm like, no, there's, I can't do this. <laughs> I can't actually live like this. The house would have been burned down, like, week two. No. Absolutely. Yeah. Girl. All right, now that we got our creepy paranormal... <laughs> also, wait, did I secretly want his name to be Barry so that I could make a Barry had a little lamb joke? Yes, I did, Moni. <laughs> was I sad when I found out it was Corey? Yes. Yes, I was. Okay. Now that I've now that I've had a bad pun because that needed to be said, do you have a creepy true crime story for me? I do, and it's and it's funny that you say Barry because it's a it's a little bit of a psychic sister moment. I mean, am I shocked? No. No. I mean, obviously we're psychic sisters. Obviously. Obviously. Johnny's just trying to get in on the trifecta and I don't think he's welcome. I know. No. I don't know. He's not on our wavelength, Monique. (laughs) No, absolutely not. So I am going to be talking about Harry Strauss and you're going to know what is the world of this topic by my sources, of which there are plenty. Mafiahitters.com, Ranker.com, allthatsinteresting.com, Wikipedia, Facebook, mafiasum.blogspot.com, jgrit.com, themobmuseum.org, which I've been to in Vegas. It's fucking rad as fuck. Crime Time Stories YouTube channel and Blood Letters and Bad Men YouTube channel. I'm so here for this. I secretly like love like hitmen stories and whatnot. So I'm into this. Did I kind of want to be one as like a weird teenager? Yeah, (laughs) there was something deeply wrong with me. I was like, that's my dream job. Murdering people for money. Heyo. I have issues. Oh my God. You're <laughs> hilarious. Uh, no, I, I definitely never had the wanting to be a hitman thing. I wanted to be a paranormal investigator because I wanted to make less money than I do now, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> That's still great. And I still respect that. <laughs> but it's funny, but I'm a total scaredy cat. So I don't even know why I wanted to do that. Like, no, I'm not staying in a haunted hotel. That's true. Yeah. Delusions of, of youth. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's real. Yeah. Absolutely. Harry Strauss was born on July 28, 1909, and grew up in the Brownsville neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York. Brownsville was a predominantly Jewish neighborhood, and when the Great Depression set in, Brownsville became a hub of gang activity, with many turning to organized crime while still in their teens. Like most... Strauss began as a small-time thief. By the early 1930s, he was committing assaults, larcenies, and drug deals. He once told an associate, quote, like a ball player, that's me. I figure I get my seasoning doing these jobs. Someone from one of those big mobs spots me, then up to the big leagues, end quote. And 
that's exactly what the fuck happened. What? Yes. Mm-hmm. In the early 1930s, Harry Strauss, Meyer Goldstein, and Abe Kid Twist Rowles caught the attention of Louis Lepke Buckalter for how quickly they had deposed of and replaced the Shapiro brothers, the previous gang lords of Brownsville. Buckalter was part of the National Crime Syndicate, a confederation of several of the most powerful Jewish and Italian criminal organizations in the country who shunned open conflict on the streets in exchange for mutual cooperation. The group was first conceived by Charles Lucky Luciano, who had seen firsthand how the destructive gang war between rival bosses Salvador Maranzano and Joe Mazzarea for control of the New York underworld had not only led to the deaths of hundreds of mafia members, but also a significant uptick in police attention. Luciano believed that war among the gangs was bad for business. So he orchestrated a hit on both Maranzano and Mazzarea and took over control of New York himself, becoming the most powerful and influential criminal figure in the United States. However, Luciano also believed that as long as there was only one singular boss, war between rival gangs and ambitious gangsters was to be inevitable. So in 1931, he called a meeting in Chicago where he proposed a commission be created to serve as the governing body for organized crime, with its purpose being to ensure that all disputes between rival groups be settled amicably to avoid the disastrous gang wars of the past, with the power being shared equally amongst what has been described as a board of directors. The board included notorious mob figures such as Meyer Lansky, Al Capone, Lepke Buckalter, Bugsy Siegel, Frank Costello, Nucky Johnson, and Albert Anastasia, who would eventually be given the nickname the Lord High Executioner. Damn. Okay. Mm -hmm. Those are bold words. I mean, but he earned it, obviously. Okay, yeah. Shortly after the formation of the syndicate, it was decided that they needed to acquire a no-nonsense ring of murderers for hire working as mob enforcers to ensure that the group's objectives were met and principles adhered to. This ring would eventually become known in the press as Murder Incorporated. Oh, yeah. Yep. Which I... Apparently did it, even though I went to the fucking mob museum, I apparently, I didn't realize that Murder Inc. was essentially like a fucking tap agency for like contract killers. <laughs> I thought it was a gang. I thought Murder Inc. was its own gang. Yeah. No, it's fucking nuts. Murder Inc. was formed by notorious Jewish American gangsters, Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel and run by Louis Lepke Buckalter. Buckalter recommended Abe Rell's and his Brownsville boys for the job as he was very impressed by how they had handled the Shapiros. By this time, the Brownsville boys had grown to include hundreds of stone-cold killers, such as Harry Strauss. So if you wanted to have someone killed by Murder, Inc., the process for getting a contract issued went as follows. A gangster would stand before the syndicate's board and present their case as to why their selected target deserved to die. The board would hear their arguments, deliberate, and then deliver the verdict. If the board agreed with the petitioner, Buckalter would then issue the contract and he would entrust the job to Albert Anastasia, who would then contact the Brownsville boys to perform the hit. This system allowed Buckalter and the syndicate to keep a level of insulation between themselves and the actual killing, which they believed would ensure that nothing could ever be pinned directly on them. I love this so much. I love that they have to like, it's like fucking Shark Tank. They're like, okay, I want this guy killed. Here's my idea. Girl. Literally, like I was just not aware 
of, I understand it's organized crime, but it's really organized. I literally did not understand. It's re- they're really, <laughs> they're very serious about it. Like, is there someone keeping the minutes? Like, it's very fucking organized. There's a little mafia stenographer in the corner. Like, so <laughs> I got, I'm taking it down. Could you read that back to me, Louise? <laughs> <laughs> Literally, I, I'm, I'm so shocked by all, like, I don't know how I missed all of this. I love it so much. I know I shouldn't because it's murdered, but yes, I'm into it. <laughs> I mean, there's something, I'm just like shocked by all of it. I, I'm, I'm a very naive person and I haven't really done research into organized crime. It'll be like individual people, but not like the entity. Yes. I was thinking the same thing because I'm not really familiar with this like process of doing this. No. I kind of just thought like you were like, okay, I want somebody killed. So you're like, hey, you go up to your friend in the group and you're like, hey, can you kill this guy? And they're like, yeah, I'll, yeah, I got you. Yeah. Not literally calling up temporary staffing by Suzanne and being what? like, hey, is this, is so-and-so available like Friday night at like 1 a.m. to do this fucking thing? Like, this is so fucking nuts to me. It's crazy. It's crazy. So- the freelance assassins were put on a steady weekly salary of $125 a week or over $2,200 in today's money to just be on call and ready to kill whenever an order was given. That's it. It's not even for the hit. Just to be available. Girl. 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 Yeah, sign me up. I'm good with that. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean. Oh. <laughs> I'm not continuing that, but I mean. But like... <laughs> So even if a member of Murder, Inc. didn't kill anyone for months, he was still paid his salary every week. And when a contract came in, a hitman could be paid anywhere from a grand to $5,000 extra for the hit, especially if it was particularly well done, which is up to $88,705 in today's money for one hit. Damn! Girl! This is a Good racket. Like, I, I'm not supporting this, but like, I get it. That's the thing. I, and this is granted, the depression has just fucking happened. Oh, yeah. Wall Street has collapsed. People are fucked. Like, and they're like, hey, do you want $88,000 for like a night of work? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, please. Thank you. Where do I sign? I get it. And like, and on the days that you don't work, the weeks you don't work, we're going to give you 2200 Is that cool? Is that cute? Just chill. Yeah. Like, yeah. Amazing. Love this job. I mean, all I'm saying is I get it. I'm not condoning any of this. Yes. But I get, you know, I get it. Yes. Making that clear. Yes. Making that very clear. I'm not supporting contract killings or the mafia, but I super get it. Murder Incorporated set up shop inside Rosie Gold's candy store at 779 Saratoga Avenue in Brooklyn. The nondescript candy shop was run by a 67-year-old woman named Rosie Gold, who was nicknamed Midnight Rose due to the fact that her candy shop was open 24 hours a day, making it the perfect front for a group of on-call assassins. When a contract was issued, the phone at the candy shop would ring, and a killer would be chosen who would then meticulously plan out the hit, sometimes spending weeks or even months diligently planning out their assignment. And their go-to number one guy was Harry Strauss, or as he became known on the streets, Pittsburgh Phil, which is interesting because one, his name isn't Phil. Two, he'd never actually been to Pittsburgh. (laughs) He's like, I'm going to throw him off. They're never going to figure it out. (laughs) Girl. And as much as I looked, I could not find out the origins of his moniker. Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'm still hung up on the fact that this like contract killing agency is like 
in a fucking candy shop front and there's like a cute little old lady manning the counter. Like, I want that job. That's amazing. Also, I mean, one, that is amazing. Two, who the fuck, how is, who needs candy at like three in the morning? Which I know I just said that and I was like, I go to 7-Eleven across the street all the time for a Twix at like two in the morning. Yeah. Don't you dare judge, Monique. I've definitely had some, I'm drunk, I'm going to walk into this bodega and fucking get all of the Sour Patch Kids, all of the Sour Gummy Bears, all of the Reese's Cups. Throw in some crunchy bars if you're feeling fun. I'm not judging. I just, I just don't see uh, like how this wasn't sus as fuck that there's a candy shop that's 24 hours. <laughs> They're like, no, no, no. Kids are out that late. It's totally fine. Right. Because like a bodega has like booze and shit. Yeah. Like, I mean, not hard liquor, but they have beer and they have food. It's like, this is just a candy shop. It's a fucking candy shop. Like, also, it's a candy shop in the depression, right? So it's not like everyone has like a lot of extra like disposable income. Yes, there's no disposable income. Exactly. Literally, exactly. So I'm like, how is not anyone putting together that this is sus as fuck that there's a 24-hour candy shop? Yeah, you're right. This is a huge red flag. Exactly. It's a red flag. But Pittsburgh Phil stood out for his brutality. He loved his work and often accepted jobs merely for the pleasure of a kill. Once he got a contract, he would follow his mark, who he would refer to as a bum, all day, waiting for the right time and place. Then he would use any object close by that he could get his hands on to finish the deed. He never carried a weapon on him when out on a job. That way, if the cops picked him up on suspicion, they'd have to let him go because they'd have no probable cause to hold him. For example, in 1935, Strauss was contracted to kill a man in Miami, Florida. He followed his mark to a movie theater and sat down behind the man. The gangster caught the eye of a fire axe hanging on the wall of the theater, grabbed it, and smashed down the blade of the hatchet on his victim's head. And when everyone in the theater freaked the fuck out and started screaming because literally, what the fuck? This crazy shit is going down when you're just trying to catch a matinee of Coco. Like, what the fuck? Strauss joined them, acting like one of the terrified moviegoers. It's brilliant. Blending in and slipping out of the theater with the crowd unnoticed. Like, well played. Here's your fucking Oscar, sir. That was brilliant. So smart. I mean, he's a very street smart dude. I kind of love that. Okay, wait, one quick story because you said fire axe. So we rewatched Alien 3 and they say that in there because they're like, oh, there's no weapons on the prison planet. So we only have like knives and the fire axe. And I was like, what the fuck is a fire axe? Like what is on fire? And Johnny's like, no, the ones they like use for fires, the red ones. I was like, oh. No, in case of emergency, you break it. (laughs) Cool. Yes, obviously that's what that is. It's not an axe that's on fire, Amy. That's not what that is. That'd be metal as fuck though. Right? I was like, that's a great weapon. Why why are they like saying it like that? I was like, okay, no. That's like some like, Marvel, like Game of Thrones shit, just like rolling in with an axe, just blazing. Blaming? Yeah, I was into it. But that's not what it was. I was disappointed. It's the case of emergency break for the, the axe. Red axe, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're like, they just painted it red, Amy. Thanks. I'm obsessed with you and I love you so much, though. I'm obsessed with you. I'm so happy you brought that up. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, continue. No, we're a good girl. Phil was known for being especially brutal in case the last anecdote wasn't, yeah, you know, <laughs> apparent enough. That's pretty obvious. Using a variety of methods, including shooting, drowning, strangulation, live burial, and stabbing via ice pick to kill his intended victim, which it seems like the ice pick was a go-to for him. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a decent 
decent weapon. Like it's real sharp. Right through the ear, you're good. I don't think he did this, but I read about someone else who who would stab someone in like their right ear. Yeah. With the, ooh. Yeah, I can't think of who it is, but I, yeah, that's coming to mind. That's all I'm thinking about right now is the ice pick of the ear. Yep. I know. Ooh, shivers. I don't like any of that though. Not at all. Not for one fucking second. Oh my God. In 1937, Murder, Inc. had sent New York mobster Walter Sage upstate to oversee the slot machine racket at an underground casino. Sage had been associated with Murder, Inc. for several years, allegedly carrying out several contract killings for the group. After Sage settled into his new role overseeing slots, his boss approached the syndicate, saying that Sage's books didn't add up and that he had been skimming profits from the casino for himself. And his boss asked the syndicate to make an example out of him. Ooh, dude. You knew that was a no-no, and you literally work for the company you know they're going to send after you. Like, you know they don't fuck around. I don't know why they don't know that. I actually don't know why. Hubris. That's what that is. That absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yep. Hubris, thy name is Walter Sage. <laughs> <laughs> yes. One night in July of 1937, Sage's associates, Irving Cohen, Jack Drucker, and Harry Strauss, picked him up from the Ambassador Hotel in Fallsburg, New York. As they were driving, Sage was grabbed from behind and stabbed 32 times with an ice pick. The men drove to Swan Lake, where, in a move of poetic justice, they tied up Sage's body to a slot machine, rode it to the mm-hmm. Okay, I love it. I did like a fuck yeah motion to Monique because I was like, you know me, like I love like a theme and a like good like play on words. So like a play on what he did yeah, I mean, I'm, I would totally be here for this. I'm like so here for this, and it's really fucked up. <laughs> oh, it's super fucked up. It's really fucked up. I like, get it. Okay, okay, okay. I'm here for this in a movie, not in real life. Okay. Yes, but I would be. I would be like, yeah, that's the fucking move. If that scene showed up in a movie, yep. Mm-hmm. So they tied Sage's body to a slot machine, rode it to the middle of the lake, and pushed him overboard. Two weeks later, after the intestinal gases built up, as it does in a decomposing body, Sage's body somehow dislodged itself from the slot machine and floated up to the surface with vacationers finding his corpse while canoeing in the lake, which can you fucking imagine? You're like, you're like, Susan, I've had a really stressful few months at work. I think we should just go away, have a nice little vacay, little, you know, at a little cabin on the lake get our bang on, get a little like morning row in. And then this is what the fuck you see? No, no. All of the trauma. Oh my God. Absolutely not. No. And like you're stuck in a boat. Like you can't like just be like, oh, I'm going to fucking 180 and power walk the other way to get away from this. Like you have to like frantically like row yourself away as the body's like bumping against the road. No, 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 no. And it's 1937. So it's not like, hi, I'm just going to call on my cell phone. To be like, cops, what the fuck? You have to like go and find someone in the fucking woods. What? No, like all of this is a shant from me. And I know there are people out there that their like fantasy in life is to come across a dead body like during a jog or something. I am not that person. No, thank you. I don't ever want to find a floater when I'm out just trying to get my swim on. No, no, definitely not. Not a body in water. No, I don't want to find a body on land, but definitely not in water. I know. And what I hear about like when you, especially if they've been in there for like two weeks. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the condition that they're in. Nope, it's not good. 
learning from his mistake, Strauss made it a point to stab all future victims in the stomach who were to be disposed of in bodies of water. Again, street smart. Very smart. I hate that I like keep nodding with this guy. I'm like, yeah, all right. Fucking, he's on point. I mean, there's a reason why he was like the number one guy. Yeah. In 1939, a hit was put out on Irving Puggy Feinstein. Feinstein was a bookmaker turned police informant, which is a huge fucking no-no. Ooh. Obviously for the mob. Bad. Where they say loyalty is everything, except they're also not fucking loyal to any of them. That's just the irony of all of it. When it was discovered that he was cooperating with authorities, the syndicate ordered a hit on Feinstein. Harry Strauss, Martin Goldstein, and Abe Kid Twistwells lured Feinstein into a Brooklyn home, and there, Phil shoved Feinstein down on a couch and stabbed him repeatedly with, again, an ice pick. The ice pick. Dude loves the ice pick. Apparently. Feinstein, fighting for his life, bit down hard on Pittsburgh Phil's finger. Pissed as fuck that the guy he was actively killing wasn't into it. <laughs> like, he was like, how fucking very dare you? Ow! Ma'am. Ow! I'm trying to murder you right now. Can you not? Could you be, like, kind of cooperative about this? <laughs> Please and thank you. <laughs> it's like a Band-Aid or something. It's like, really hurts. But, like, a cute one with, like, the Flintstones on it. I don't want a regular, like, fucking Band-Aid. Thank you. Strauss grabbed a rope and looped it around Feinstein's neck and tied it to his feet, bent behind his back. One of Strauss's go-to moves. Oh! So that as Feinstein kicked and struggled to get out, he only tightened the rope around his neck, (gasps) with the victim eventually strangling himself to death while the hitman watched. Oh, that's dark. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Oof. And even though Sage was already dead, they tied him in the same manner to the slot machine. Oh, damn. Yeah. Then they took Puggy's body to a vacant lot and set it on fire and fucking left it out for everyone to see. That's how few fucks these guys had because they knew that they could leave a fucking burning body in a fucking parking lot and just get away with it. I mean, dude murdered a guy in a movie theater. I mean. With people in it and still was just like, bye. Mm -hmm. The balls. I mean, of steel and enormous. Yes, enormous. <laughs> like, you know. Pendulous. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. The Brownsville boys then went to Sheep's Head Bay for a seafood dinner. Aw, nice. <laughs> but Pittsburgh Phil was not happy. He told his colleagues, quote, maybe I'm getting locked off from being bit, end quote. Allegedly, Phil was so upset about his finger that he barely managed to finish his lobster dinner. Okay. You're like a hardened contract killer. You'd be like, I don't want to be like, don't be a bitch about this, but don't be a bitch about this. Like, I got bit by a dog and I still just like had fucking Christmas dinner. I was like, it's whatever. Just give me some tequila. We're good. Literally, I know. And be like, I don't even know if I can finish my lobster. Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Seriously. You fucking brutally murdered someone and then torched their corpse and you're upset that he gave you a fucking bite on your finger? Like, Charlie bit my finger. This is what's happening right now? I was just going to say, it's so ridiculous. (laughs) It's ridiculous. (laughs) This guy. Dish it out, but literally can't take like one one hundredth of it. Fucking relax. Yeah. Hypocrisy. District Attorney Burton Turkus wrote, quote, Pittsburgh Phil was vicious as a Gestapo agent as casually cold-blooded as a meat-grinding machine in a butcher shop. 
He had such a lust for bloodletting that he would volunteer to handle contracts even when it was not his turn to work. He was such an eager and capable killer that he was the first choice in most instances to be sent out, end quote. I mean, if he's getting $88,000 for these kids, I'd kind of be volunteering too at this point. And he clearly doesn't give a fuck. He has no like empathy for these people. So I just be like, yeah, whatever. If I'm making that much, fuck it, bring it on. Basically, like he doesn't give a fuck. Like I'll pick up your shift tonight. Thanks. Yeah. You call in, yeah. And he's like, oh, I'm BT Dubs, I'm excellent at it. <laughs> Employee of the month. Like- every month. <laughs> Bitch. <laughs> My fucking face is on the wall of the candy shop. Literally. It's it's like in, in the <laughs> office when like Dwight Schrute is like, I was employee of the month 13 months, you know, 13 times last year. It's like, yes, I said 13 because one month I was given two plaques in lieu of pay raise. <laughs> like that's basically this fucking dude. Oh my God. Strauss was in high demand. The Brooklyn bred thug became so popular that when an out-of-town mob or crime family needed an outsider for a contract, they almost always requested Phil. And out-of-town killing became his specialty. He would hop on a train or plane to his destination, perform the hit, and then quietly head back to New York after getting a copy of the following day's paper, of course, so he could enjoy the attention of his handiwork. And Phil often didn't know the name of the person he had killed or even why they were being killed, and he legit didn't give a fuck to find out. However, given that he was from out of town, didn't know the victim, and didn't really have a motive against the victim, authorities really couldn't trace the murders back to him. Smart, 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 smart. That's why they're dividing all of this. That's why they have uh, checks and balances there. Again, it's like so organized that I'm actually for the first time ever really realizing like what organized crime means. Like this is actually fucking nuts. I've worked for like major corporations that are not this fucking organized straight up. Right? Like at all. That it's just like a fucking dumpster fire nonstop that you're constantly having to put out. (laughs) And he was like, we got it under control, thanks. I have a spreadsheet going, actually. Thanks. Even though Strauss was super nonchalant about murdering people, he was known to be very charming. He always wore expensive $60 suits, which ran just about a grand in today's money. He was tall and handsome. And because we can't have nice things, Pittsburgh Phil was a highly pursued ladies' man. Oh, yeah. The contract killer was often seen with beautiful women on each arm, with associates referring to his bevy of beautiful admirers as his harem. Strauss even dated the original blonde bombshell, Jean Harlow, which, what the fuck? What? They like a little danger. It's like a, it's edgy. There's like a bad boy... And then there's a contract killer. Well, facts, Monique. Like, the contract killer with Murder, Inc. Like, those are two wildly different things. Like, there's a guy who has, like, a nipple piercing and a motorcycle. They also, like, I don't know. <laughs> and, then, like, there's this fucking shit. There's this guy who is actually murdering people. <laughs> like, he's actually the number one murderer for Murder Incorporated. She's like, it makes the sex so much hotter. I could almost die. Like, <laughs> I mean, literally. I cannot for one fucking second. I can't. By 1934... Pittsburgh Phil had been arrested 17 times in New York City alone on assorted charges of homicide, assault, and larceny. But as District Attorney Burton Turkus wrote, he, quote, had never been convicted of so much as smoking on a subway platform, end quote, because ultimately there was never enough evidence to convict him. 
1935, Thomas Dewey was appointed special prosecutor in New York County by Governor Herbert H. Lehman and tasked with eliminating organized crime and corruption in the state. Dewey's office estimated that through Murder Incorporated, Lepke Buchalter had over 200 men working directly under him and that his criminal empire was generating over $1 million a year, which is over $21.6 million in two days' money. Damn. Girl. Like, they're real good at this. They're, like, nailing it. They're making this much money. And, and granted, this is what they're making. They're, they're literally spending $88,000 on a fucking hit. That's crazy. And they have 200 people working for them doing these hits. This is actually kook bananas. After Buchalter was convicted on federal drug smuggling charges and labor extortion charges, Albert Anastasia ran Murder Incorporated, and by 1940, the group was estimated to be responsible for over 200 unsolved murders in Brooklyn alone. Fuck, dude. That's Girl, so many. That's so fucking many. That's so many. Brooklyn's pretty big, but that's a lot. Too much. So for for the record, there was 147 murders in Brooklyn last year. Thank you. I was like, do you have context? Yes. There's 147 murders in Brooklyn last year. And, and granted, these are just the unsolved ones. There's 200 unsolved murders in Brooklyn alone that Murder, Inc. is responsible for. Prosecutors caught a lucky break when an anonymous tip led to Abe Kid Twist Rells being implicated in several of the unsolved murders. Rells had a come-to-Jesus moment and realized that if convicted— he would be sent to the electric chair. So Rells flipped and became a government witness. Ooh. Uh-huh. See, all this loyalty bullshit, it's total bullshit. Save your ass when it comes to it. Mm-hmm. And, and here's the thing, too. Like, you have no problem murdering all these people, and then the second that you might be facing the electric chair for everything you did, you're like, uh, 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 I need to save my life. Fuck all the way off. Right? Honestly, just on principle, I'd have been like, <laughs> What? Fuck you. I'll fucking go to the lecture. I'll get fuck. I'm the guy who kills people with a fucking ice pick. I have a heart of ice. Yes, exactly. So Rells flipped and became a government witness and began spilling the tea about every murder he had knowledge of. Initially, the stories Rells told prosecutors seemed too outlandish to be believed, but were all proven to be true when he pointed police to where bodies were buried and key evidence was hidden. Among the Murder, Inc. members implicated by Rells, were Harry Strauss and Rouse's own childhood friend, Martin Goldstein. Strauss and Goldstein were arrested for the murder of Irving Puggy Feinstein. And despite the jeers and taunts from his former friends and associates, Rouse became the chief prosecuting witness and testified at the trials of all those he implicated, including Strauss and Goldstein. While on the stand, Rouse added this detail about the night Feinstein was killed. He said, quote, we drive out to the fields back of Brooklyn. Phil dumps the bum out and then brings out some gas and pumps it all over the guy. Then he lights the gas up and watches him burn. Puggy makes a nice fire, don't he? Phil says. Yeah, I say. What are you going to say to something like that, huh? Phil is nuts. End quote. This is a court transcript. Damn. Mm-hmm. And like just obviously also goes to show like how fucking blasé, you know, fucking Harry Strauss is. Like, he's like, oh, he makes a nice fire, now. Yeah. Yeah, let's go have a lobster dinner. I'm still really fucked up about him biting my finger, though. I'm not going to get over that for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? I mean, the level of, like, sociopathy and psychopathy is, like, off the fucking charts with this dude. Oh, for sure. 
Yeah. Yeah. But I wouldn't want to like disagree with that. Yeah. That makes a real nice fire. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get <laughs> some, let's toast some fucking mallows, man. Let's go. Yeah. Let's do it. Strauss, realizing that he was completely fucked, decided to lean in and play the insanity defense. He stopped shaving and grew out his hair and would incoherently mutter to himself and even chewed on his lawyer's leather briefcase until the prosecutor literally was like, dude, fucking stop. Can you? Yeah. We know it's up. Please. I just bought this. Strauss also offered to turn state's witness in exchange for five minutes in a room with Rells. However, authorities knew better than to let Phil in the same room as Rells, as Phil eventually admitted that he did not intend to turn informer. Strauss said, quote, I just wanted to sink my tooth into his jugular vein. I didn't worry about the chair. If I could just tear his throat out first, end quote. Bro, what? That is too much. I mean. That's very far. That is some Rick Grimes from uh, Walking Dead shit. I'm not here for that. Dude, and given Pittsburgh Phil's history of savage killings, no one fucking doubted he could do it. They're like, ah. Uh, no. no, I believe that 100%. He was going to do that. Mm-hmm. On September 19th, 1940, Strauss and Goldstein, who were tried together, were convicted of first-degree murder and a week later sentenced to death in the electric chair at Sing Sing. But even while on death row, Harry Strauss kept up his Looney Tune bit, hoping for a commuted sentence. However, on the last day of his life, Strauss realized that the jig was up and he cleaned himself up and became his old dapper self. He said goodbye to his girlfriend, Evelyn, and he further set the record straight by admitting that before his trial, he had offered to turn state's witness if he was allowed to talk to Rells first. On June 12, 1941, Martin Goldstein was executed at Sing Sing Prison via the electric chair. And a few minutes later, at 11.06 p.m., Pittsburgh Phil followed him. Martin Goldstein was 36, while Harry Strauss was just 31 years old. Damn. I know. Despite amassing an incredible fortune with Murder, Inc., Strauss apparently died penniless, having spent his entire wealth on legal fees and a bounty for Abrell's head. And... There is speculation that that money didn't go to waste. Really? Tell me more. Mm-hmm. Prosecutors set their sights on the Lord High Executioner himself, Albert Anastasia, and charged him in 1939 with the murder of a union activist. And because the trial was based almost entirely on Rells's testimony, the informant was kept hidden and under guard in room 623 at the Half Moon Hotel on Coney Island for his protection. On the day he was set to testify against Albert Anastasia, Abe Kid Twist Rells fell six flights out of his hotel room window and plummeted to his death. Investigators found two sheets tied together to the radiator in his room, which led investigators to believe that the fall was an accident resulting from Rells trying to escape. The following day, the five police officers who were in charge of guarding Rells that day were all demoted immediately afterwards. But there was widespread speculation that Rells had actually been pushed out of the window and that his death was orchestrated to look like an accident. Rells had never stated any desire to escape and in fact had repeatedly said that he was terrified of being even out of earshot of the police. And it is alleged that Frank Costello had paid a $100,000 bribe to the guards to kill Rells. And while that might sound a little far-fetched, one of Rells' police guards was NYPD detective Charles Burns, who in 2005 
was implicated in the murder of New York anti-corruption judge and state Supreme Court Justice Joseph Crater, who disappeared without a trace in 1930. It is believed that Burns killed Crater on behalf of Murder Incorporated and buried his body somewhere in Coney Island. However, it is important to note that Rouse's death was officially ruled an accident by a grand jury in 1950, which I'm sorry, you got it wrong, grand jury. Like, how much shit did you know in the 50s? Nothing. Yeah. Like, this is a fucking hit. Sorry, not sorry. It seems pretty obviously a hit. Yeah. It's pretty fucking obvious. The trials of the various gangsters absolutely devastated Murder, Inc., which disbanded shortly after Harry Strauss and Martin Goldstein were convicted. But in their 10-year run, it's estimated that Murder, Incorporated was responsible for the deaths of a thousand people, most of which were low profile and therefore never solved. Harry Pittsburgh Phil Strauss was the most valued and trusted hitman for Murder, Inc. While it is known that he has killed more than a hundred people, some historians believe his body count could be as high as 500, meaning that Strauss alone killed between 10% and 50% of all of the people killed by Murder, Inc. Regardless of whether his body count is 100 or 500, the fact remains that Pittsburgh Phil has killed more people than anyone else in the history of the American mob. And that is the story of Harry Pittsburgh Strauss and Murder Incorporated. Oh my God. Girl. He's literally carrying that company. He's like, yeah, I'm doing all the work. Thanks. Yes, literally. That is fucking insane. I had no idea about a lot of that. I literally had zero idea. (sighs) Also, I could not stop thinking of uh, (laughs) the Groundhog Day Groundhog because he's like pencil. Chuck me Phil or whatever the fuck he is. <laughs> yes. And I was like, it's too close. It's too close to that. So I'm definitely picturing a little groundhog just like taking bitches out with ice picking ice shit. Pick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's my brain for you. That is exactly the visual we needed after the story. Thank you so much for that, Amy. I'm obsessed with you. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm obsessed with you. Thank you for doing a story about mafia hitmen because did I like get sucked down a rabbit hole about that the other day? randomly yeah girl that's what it must have been i i I heard your psychic sister because i was doing another story you picked up on it and then did this instead (sighs) and i've never obviously i've never done a story on mafia people no no and i think i decided to do not do it i think it was last week and i was just like i like all these but i was like this is i was like do something else look for something else something like uplifting survival story and then i like abandoned it but you knew you knew that's what i needed i knew it I knew it. And I, I considered doing Murder, Inc. And I was like, this is so in-depth that I can't. So I need to pick a dude in Murder, Inc. Yeah. That was a good way to do it, though. I liked that. I liked that I got like a taste of how they like set everything up. And then I got his insane story. <sighs> Fucking crazy, man. The movie theater thing, I'm really like not going to get over. That's going to stick with me. Well, because someone like every article was like, oh, he did this. And then one article was like, no, he didn't. The guy moved. But and then one of the one of the YouTube channels that I watched, they show the newspaper clipping of it. And I was like, oh, so he did it. Like, what the fuck? Can you literally imagine just catching a matinee and someone gets their fucking head smashed in by a fucking axe in the middle of it? No. Like not for one fucking second. No. I would never go to the movies again. I'd be like, he ruined movies for me. Like I could never go back. Literally. Like, this is awful. The trauma. 
And this was just a fucking thing that happened. Yeah. Also, at this point in time, like movies are like a huge deal. Absolutely. There's not a ton of them. They're just kind of like coming out and making like it a normal thing to go out to the movies. So no. I mean, that this was like the same shit like it with the cocaine wars in Miami. Yeah. How like you could just be at a nightclub and they could just, someone could just walk in and start shooting. Yeah. And it was just like a thing that happened. What? What? Like, why is that normal? That should not be normal. Yeah. I live a super sheltered life and I'm not upset about it. Privilege. Yeah. I'm okay with that. I don't want, I don't want this to be my experience. Thank you. No, I definitely do not. In a movie, cool. In a, in a fictional movie, great. Tie the dude up to a slot machine. Yeah. I watched this movie today. Yeah. Absolutely. Real life, no. I love you and I'm so obsessed with you. I love you and I'm so obsessed with you. Because you read my mind and this is exactly what I wanted this week. Psychic sisters, baby. Girl, all the time. I love you so much. I love you. And we love you guys so much. Thank you so much for listening. This is another fucking horror podcast. I'm Monique Sanchez. I'm Amy Trayton. If you don't follow us on the gram, you should. We're at another fucking horror podcast. You can find me, Monique, at Pinup Girl Mo. You can find me, Amy, at Lobotomy, and that's Lobot period Amy. Every sixth episode, which is next week, we do our True Listener Tales episode where we read your crazy personal stories. So if you have one or you just want to say hi, email us at another fucking horror podcast at gmail.com with a period instead of the you and fucking. Guys, we're so fucking obsessed with you. Thanks for being rad as fuck. Keep it cute. Keep it creepy. Bye. Bye.